Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Hey, I just, as, as Shane mentioned, um, I, I failed to do this first service, but as Shane mentioned yesterday, uh, I want to thank all of our vo- volunteers. We had, I think, 45 volunteers that came and helped um, just work on, on our, our building. Um, and this is what they completed. I'm just going to list this out, just some itemized list of stuff that they did so you kind of get an idea of what happened. They replaced the ceiling tiles in all of the seven preschool classrooms. Come on. Um, they laid rubber baseboards in, 200, in, in room 215 and the preschool room. They painted the sanctuary, uh, painted the middle hallway, started painting in the back hallway, and painted the kindergarten classroom. So I want to thank all of our 45 volunteers for all of that. Uh, last week, if you were here, we talked about Jesus and spirituality, the cross and the spirituality. Today, I'm going to be talking about Jesus and grace. Everyone say grace. Jesus and grace. So let's begin. So what we find in, in this first Timothy passage is that Paul is a man. Everyone say Paul. Paul is a man very much in touch with who he was. That's important. Like he doesn't forget, like he's brilliant and he's also profoundly autobiographical. So what he does often is that he weaves it, uh, sketches of his former life into his writing on theology, uh, his thinking on Jesus. He often has ad hoc responses to particular situations, and he weaves kind of these autobiographical sketches into it. The passage that we read in First Timothy today, as Keegan uh, read, uh, illustrates Paul's capacity or autobiographical capacity by showing his life in the starkest of terms. He was, three words, he calls himself in his former life. He was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, and he was what? An insolent man. So these are not statements made from false humility, nor is Paul uh, given his sensationalism, right? He's not like, ah, I had a bad season. I sort of was bad, so I'm going to make up some stuff. I'm going to be really hyperbolic. And, um, and then I'm going to talk about how my personality got me into where God has me reaching the world, right? That's not, that's not the narrative that Paul is telling us. Paul is very clear, emphatically clear, that he was a bad man. Can I get any man to that? Hello, my son. I think my son wants to be a preacher. In fact, he actually says he's the baddest of uh, men. In fact, if uh, an equivalent of this would be like Paul is like a leader of a, cart- uh, a cartel who uh, pushes cocaine and traffics people, right? This is essentially what Paul is saying. Or, I mean, this is wicked, right? Paul is saying in his former life he is vile, much like a cartel leader or a 49er fan. Amen. <laughs> We never forget, Cowboy fans, right? We never forget. So what, is, what do those three words mean, right? So uh, blasphemer si- simply is a vicious slanderer. Have you ever been slandered before? Right, it's awful. 
right? But he's not just a slanderer. He's not just accidentally got some bad information and then just put something online, posted something about like uh, a friend, right? No, this is, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's engaging in disinformation, false information and false accusation. That's the definition of a blasphemer. Persecutor, I want you to think of the inquisition, right? So Paul essentially is an inquisitor who, um, I don't know, it punishes with impunity. So he has no accountability. He takes people through extreme or severe tests uh, with the intention of severely beating them or taking their life. And then he ends with the last word, insolent. How many of you know what insolent means? Okay, insolent, it's, it's a simple word. He's violent. So let's say at 2 o'clock in the morning you're downtown, right? Because you're spreading the love of Jesus. You're talking, you're handing out tracts. You're not at the club, right? Um, you're downtown and you happen to meet some guy. I've met three guys like this in my life where um, they, you, just, you can feel the violence on them. You look at their eyes. They either want to kill you, fight you, or hurt you, right? And so this is what Paul, this is how Paul is characterizing his former life. Again, the three words, he's a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent man. He's not given a sensationalism. This is who he was. He hasn't forgot. However, we come to verses 15 and 16. Paul offers, I love this, his life up as an example of being beyond hope. And I want to read these two uh, verses, verses 15 and 16. He says, the saying is trustworthy. Everyone will say trustworthy. And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Sinners of whom I am the foremost. The better translation is I'm the chief, right? Like I, I beat everybody out. If, if, if there was a competition of who the worst sinner was, that's me. That's what, essentially what he's saying. But verse 16, I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost or chief, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So here's the thing. Paul not only says that creation shot through uh, with the devastating effects of global rebellion against God, but that he is the chief of sinners. And then he says emphatically, but now, everyone say, but now, but now through the mercy of, of God, his life is a model for all who put their trust in Jesus. So the question is, how so? Well, we go back to verse 14, and verse 14 tells us, and the grace of our Lord overflowed. Everyone say overflowed. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So how is Paul's life, who formerly was a cartel, inquisitor, whatever, how is he a model for transformation? There's only one word that can explain it. Grace. Grace. Paul is saying he would be a different person from what he would be if the grace of God was not present in his life. Let me say that again because that was actually really good. And first service gave me a lot, they gave me, they got, they gave me a lot more love. <laughs> Paul is saying he would be a different person from what he would be if the grace of God was not present in his life. Sure, some of us would say, hey, Paul, man, He's rare, right? He's once in, a, once in a millennium personality, right? 
Like he's complicated. He's brilliant. Uh, he has an incredible capacity for, for energy. I've heard a lot of different theories on how Paul could do what he did. Uh, he's a three on, on an Enneagram test, or maybe he's like all the personalities on the Enneagram test. Like he's just a rare, special kind of person. But in no uncertain terms, Paul is saying it's not his personality, it's not a technique, it's not his brilliance, it's not just the basic composition of his personality, it is the grace of God that is responsible for his transformation. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on another autobiographical binge and he says, I am who I am by the grace of God. The most brilliant man outside of Jesus in, in the last 2,000 years says, I am who I am, not by, by, by personality or by how I organize my thoughts or my theological writing. I am who I am by the grace of God. He then goes on another like autobiographical flourish in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he says, I pled with God. There was a thorn in my flesh. I was wiped out, exhausted. How many of you have ever experienced something like that before? And I pled with God for him to remove it. And then God's response to me was, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul has a very peculiar understanding of his life. He is who he is because of grace. One scholar writes this, God has taken the wildest, most violent of blaspheming persecutors and has transformed him into not only a believer, but also a trusted apostle. So, 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 so. There's a clap. I was hoping for that a little bit earlier, okay? If God can do that, there is nobody out there. Nobody. Everyone say nobody. Nobody out there. No heart so hard. No anger so bitter that it remains outside the range of God's grace. There's no neural pathway that's so destroyed that lies outside of God's grace. There's no addictive personality or addiction that is somehow outside the range and the sweep of God's generosity. Grace, 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 grace. But here's the thing. Oscar Wilde said this. I've said this before. Once you turn 40, in his words, you have to own your face. He's saying Essentially, at a certain point in your life, you can't change. I'm going to get to the point where our culture is talking about this. Like, you can't grow. You hit a threshold. Let's say you turn 52. Sorry if you're 52. It's just, it's just arbitrary. You turn 52, like the best years are behind you. Right? This, this nihilism is, is, is embedded in Oscar Wilde's saying, Right? Like, you can't grow after a certain point. In fact, you're stuck. After a certain point, you are stuck with you. In other words, you're always going to be an alcoholic. Or you're always going to be involved in those toxic, abusive relationships. Or you're always going to be bound to the tragic and dehumanizing addictions that you find yourself in and going back to. Or you'll always be defined by that horror and the suffering of being betrayed by your spouse. Or you'll always be defined or colored by the sense of never being loved or you can never connect with God or you're always going to be the same stinking person and you try and you try and you come to church and you come to church. The good news is out of 1 Timothy and what we read in Titus is that the grace of God rebukes all of these as lies. Come on. 
They're lies. Remember, Paul in verse 15 said, this is a trustworthy statement. And what's this trustworthy statement? He basically says, I was this way, but now I'm this way because of God's grace. So he's making a big claim here about grace and his relationship with God's grace. He's essentially saying that God's grace that transformed him from like blasphemer, persecutor, insolent man, violent, vicious, all that kind of stuff, that God's grace that transformed him is more trustworthy than E equals MC squared. Or it's more trustworthy than, um, I don't know, the second law of, of thermodynamics. Or when you wake up tomorrow morning, we all know, or some of us know that the planet spins on its axis if you're at the equator at 1,000 miles per hour. If you're at the poles, it's about 700 miles per hour. Or I don't know if you know this, but our planet right now is hurtling through space in orbit around the sun at 66,000 miles per hour. We just take that for granted. We assume when we wake up tomorrow, the planet is still gonna be in orbit. Can I get an amen? What Paul is saying by saying this is a trustworthy statement about God's grace, he's essentially saying is more trustworthy than the planet spinning around the sun. In other words, Christianity is characteristically about God taking messed up people, broken people, addicted people, sinful people, people who, man, are not worthy, who have no hope beyond hope, and the grace of God, and you can bank on it. You can bank on it. And it's the grace of God that changes us. Well, there's two things here that I got to talk about because there's a problem, one in our culture and one personally. So I, the chicken or the egg, I'm not sure which one comes first. So I'm going to begin with, with our cultural setting. Um, so on culture, and I'm going to be as, as blunt as I can be and as gracious as I can be. But right now, there is a sense, everyone say a sense, a per, pervasive sense that um, gracelessness and ungratefulness is giving shape to our cultural setting. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, everyone say amen. amen. We censor. In other words, we censor and we cancel uh, everybody because here's the thing. We don't believe in redemption anymore. See, the culture is right in this regard. They understand that there's something fundamentally wrong with the cosmos. Where they're wrong is they no longer believe in redemption. They no longer believe in salvation because, please hear me, because they see people as irredeemable. So, in other words, our culture has no capacity for forgiveness, grace, only for slander and calling out all the heretics. So we have a call-out culture, right? In fact, there was one study that was just recently done where it said that 47% of respondents in a particular demographic, I'm not going to name the demographic uh, because a lot of you are in this demographic. <laughs> but 40, 47% of respondents under this certain age says it's right to lose my job if I accidentally say the wrong thing about somebody. So yes, we should be compassionate and yes, we should be uh, our words should be seasoned with grace and goodness. Can I get an amen to that? But embedded in this idea is that people are irredeemable. You said something, so that means that there's something irredeemably wrong with you. So I should lose my job. I should lose everything. 
This is the gracelessness that pervades our culture. But now on a personal note, um, and to what I see happen, happening in the church, and I think there's kind of this slow cultural creep into the church, is that not at this church, but at all the other churches around us, it just seems like, and, and I've been in ministry long enough where it just seems like as I talk to people, and it's, it's a feel, that many people are no longer singing Amazing Grace. The song they sing is not Amazing Grace. The song that they sing is Amazing Scarcity. Right, for some, I'll just say some. For some Christians, the unquestioned assumption in our lives is not God's grace, it's scarcity. I think a lot of this is due to fatigue. I'll be really honest with you, because a lot of you are just like, you love Jesus. Some of you, you, you have your issues because you're a Raider fan, but we'll, we'll move on. Um, and you like pet snakes and you have cats, okay? It's just, it's weird. Like, We'll get you. We'll, we'll get you saved here soon. Um, but here's the thing. <laughs> um, I actually thought that was pretty funny. Um, I know it wasn't, but I just, I laugh at myself. But I think one of the problems that we have when it comes to grace is, that it, it, is, the, is the issue of fatigue. Physical fatigue, but even more than physical fatigue, it's spiritual and emotional fatigue. I think when you just kind of go through life doing really good things, you just, you, you become fatigued. And when you become fatigued, your, your mind and your heart, have you ever experienced this? Spiritually, emotionally, you're just fatigued. And then you just start thinking up some of the darndest things. I'm going to be really honest with you. Fatigue, I think, is one of the greatest enemy of the church. I think the devil uses it to distort our perception on reality and ourselves. But I think fatigue is a way to harden our hearts. So I'm not trying to psychoanalyze us, but I really do believe that fatigue actually is a weapon, if we're not careful. It's a weapon uh, when we do good things that can take our heart away from uh, the goodness of God. And we got to be careful of that. But with that fatigue, and back to what I was talking about, scarcity, it's like we're living off scraps. What do you mean, Chris? Well, I think um, many people, we, we view Paul's life as a special case. Like he's rare. Everyone say rare. He's a special rare case of God's grace at work. Like he's more mystic than modern. We can't really relate to him. But the rest of us in time and space must somehow manage to live off of, of the leftovers. Everyone say leftovers the leftovers from the first century table of grace. So we're leftover people. I'll call it this. We are theology poor people. What does that mean? Well, theology poor people begin with the assumption or this internal condition of seeing ourselves lacking in God's grace. Right? This is the, the default position for many people which then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in their lives. So if you begin with the default position that you lack somehow God's grace because you're tired and your heart has become hard, hardened and, and you start to distort things, even though you're doing good things, you're like, I don't know if I have enough grace or if God's grace has been poor. Have you ever experienced that before? Where you're like, I read some of these passages in scripture of, of God's grace being poured out. And I'm like, where's the pouring Where's the thunderstorm of grace? Because I feel like I have a little cloud over my head and I get a drop a week of grace. If you have seven kids, you will feel that every day. Okay. How many of you have ever felt that before? Right. You just like you get a drop of grace. Many people feel that way. Like this is the leftovers from the table of grace 2000 years ago. This is a theology poor per perception of 
God's grace. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We lack God's grace. We begin there. So we begin to see everything in our lives as lacking in God's grace. So you see the circular logic, right? So rather than seeing God's grace as powerfully at work in our lives, we live with a chronic sense of inadequacy in relation to grace. Now, let me, let me say this really quick. One way the culture strategically manages inadequacy, because everyone fills it, right, is this. They say, this is the answer. You are enough, right? I don't, this is old school, SNL, long time ago. I, I remember, I loved it. I can't remember who it was. Was it, it was some, some dude. We're looking in the mirror, right? And he would say, gosh, gosh darn it, you are handsome enough. You are good looking enough. And he would just stare at himself, right? Like the self-help talk. And I, I love that because I think in many ways that describes where our culture is at. They say, okay, here's the strategy to inadequacy. You just got to tell yourself you're enough. Somehow, 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 you got to be true to yourself, right? This is all part of human potential stuff, all that kind of whatever. The problem with all of that is that, guys, you, you're going to love me. You're not enough. Like we, we, let's be honest, we don't, we don't have enough time. Like we feel that. Um, we, we know that we have way too many challenges. We know we have way too many kids, right? We, we, <laughs> some of us feel the sense, man, I, I just want to do more for God, but I don't know if I have the time or I have the talent or I, I, I have, I have this or I have that, or man, I just, I don't, I have the brilliance enough to do what God has called me to do. Or maybe some of us feel stuck in life or we just feel like we're just, again, getting the leftovers from grace and we're, we're still bound to addictions and we're still bound to mental health stuff that just keeps us from what all that, all that God has for us, right? So we feel this chronic sense of inadequacy. The answer to that is not telling yourself that you're enough. The answer is found in Titus. The answer is, of course, you are not enough. So rather than becoming the theology poor people or staying there, we need to become theology rich people. It's theology based on the Bible that sets us free. Come on, somebody. Some good teaching and some good doctrine sets us free from allowing our circumstances to shape how we think about ourselves, how we think about our family, how we think about our past, how we think about our future, right? So the answer to dealing with an in inadequacy and dealing with the, with the logic of scarcity that runs through our minds and our hearts is answering the question, what is grace? So Titus, this is where we're going to Titus chapter three, verse five. I'm going to read it. Before I do that, I just want to say this really quick. Titus has a very robust theology and the theology in the book of Titus is that the creator of the world is a lavish gift-giving host who has sent out a global, everyone would say global, global invitation to people with messy stories to become part of a new creation people. And it was all launched through the incarnation, the life of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. He is now Lord over all things, everything from the White House to your house to the crack house. Come on, somebody. And then he poured out his spirit on all flesh, formed a new community, a new social reality around King Jesus. That is the theology of Titus. God is a gift-giving, lavish host. 
when you look at all the parties in the New Testament, it's like God really likes to throw parties. And these parties are, God doesn't scrimp. God is defined by a non-frugality, right? He, he, he wants us to experience a cornucopia of abundance of life. Come on, somebody. And of grace. So with that being in our minds as a background, what is grace? This is really important. Grace is used in the New Testament 154 times in the original language as charis is the Greek word. It's an elastic word with, with a wide range of meaning. It can mean favor, it can mean grace, benefit, gift, credit, thanks, thankfulness, gratitude, and so much more. So we come to Titus chapter three, verse five, and this is what he says. He said, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. How did he save us? Go in and talk to me. Give me some love, people. His mercy. And then he'll tell us we were justified by his grace. So what is grace? Grace is that something is nothing apart from God's goodness. Grace is that something is nothing apart from God's goodness. I know we don't like to talk about this because we live in a self-esteem culture where it's like, I'm it. Look at me. I have what it takes, right? We value human potential over against what we find in scripture. I'm going to nerd out just for 30 seconds. John Barclay probably 30 minutes, but just go with me. John Barclay, New Testament theologian. You should read his stuff. He's really wordy, uh, but Paul and the Gift is a great book. New Testament scholar, one of the best scholars in the world. He, he draws from cultural anthropology during the world of Jesus and Paul and places grace, everyone say grace, in the larger category of gift giving. So grace, according to him, is situated within gift giving. And I want to focus on one aspect. He talks about many different aspects of grace, but there's one aspect of grace that he focuses on. And it's this idea in the, in the world of antiquity that gifts were given primarily, there were exceptions, but primarily to those who were worthy. This is what he says. He goes, it was normally emphasized in antiquity that gifts should be given generously, but selectively. Care should be taken that the gift is given to suitable, worthy, or appropriate recipients. Such discrimination is not a diminishment of the gift, but it ensures that it is, in fact, a very good gift. So gifts were seen as ways of giving favor to those who deserved it. Are you hearing me? So indiscriminate giving uh, appeared thoughtless. It was trivial. Uh, according to some scholars, if you really study antiquity, uh, giving gifts to those who were unworthy uh, led to a sort of cruelty. So we come to, then to now back to Titus and, and Timothy and Paul's autobiographical sketches. And something's happening here. It, it provides a scaffolding for really understanding a primary aspect of grace. And it's this. The grace that we find in the Bible goes against the grain of how people understood grace in antiquity. Grace is given to the unworthy. It's given to those who have met no prior condition. 
It's given to those who are broken. Those who are blasphemers. Those who are slanderers. Those who are violent and vicious. Those who depersonalize people and have no capacity for mercy. This is the grace of God rooted in his generosity that transformed the known world. The fact, the fact that Jesus would give his life for someone. Romans chapter five says, while we were ungodly and while we were what? Sinners, right? What is, what, what is, what is sinners? What's the definition of it? It's just a failure to live up to God's definition of what it means to fully be human. So we all have failed to live up to God's standard of what it means to be human. So while we were hating on God, while we were defining reality on our own terms, Christ died for us. And and this is so important for us to understand because in the world of antiquity, grace and giving and showering gifts on the worthy help to order the cosmos. And so for to give gifts to the unworthy in a sense was to create moral chaos. And yet the Bible disagrees with that. The Bible insists that God is a generous God who loves us and our inclusion into his family, our inclusion into his life, our, our inclusion into uh, the power that God has for us to break us free from addictions and from those things that dehumanize us, set us and then set us free into the call that God has for us is not predicated on anything related to us. It all starts with Jesus. And this, this kind of grace is scandalous. It's funny, preachers will get up all the time and, and usually if they're not careful, they'll overuse scandalous. Like, this is scandalous, this is scandalous, this is scandalous, this is scandalous. And then after about a couple of minutes, you're like, that's not that scandalous. <laughs> With any given topic. But I can actually rightly say, and I think appropriately say, that God's grace in the world of antiquity is un, un, unqualified scandalous. It is a scandal that we can't even imagine. So what do we do uh, when it comes to grace? What do do we do when it comes to like this sense of scarcity in our own lives? Why why do we struggle with being a theology poor people? Well, let me just say this really quick and I want to give the answer. I'm going to bring everything full circle and I want to pray for us. You see, here's the thing. Lies. Everyone say lies. lies. Lies only have the power over us to the extent that we believe them. Do you believe that? What does it feel like to be wrong? Any takers, talk to me. Feels what? Yeah, front row, be quiet. I want to listen to the back row. (laughs) It feels horrible. Yeah, yeah, eventually it feels horrible. Without question, 100% right. But what it feels like to be wrong is it feels like fundamentally, especially at first, it feels like being right. Right? And here's the thing. When it comes to lies, what do lies feel like? Lies feel like the absolute truth. The devil's not going to come to you and like say, hey, one day he's going to knock on your door and he's in full garb, right? Medieval, full garb, red everywhere, 
looks disgusting, teeth just all over the place, right? He's a redhead, right? You know, I can, <laughs> I'm a redhead, so I can say that, right? And he says, hi, my name's the devil, okay? So here's a lie. You suck, right? Well, here's the thing. Like, some of you are smart enough. Some of you were still working on that. I'm kidding, right? <laughs> but we're smart enough to know, okay, that's the devil. And John 8 tells me that he's a pathological liar. So everything that comes out of his mouth is false. So we're just going to shut the door and go back to eat, eating crumpets and drinking tea. Like, if, as we're English, right? I don't know. See, the devil doesn't work that way. He works in subtlety. And we've talked about this so much, right? Lies believe, lies are, they're believable. They're cogent. They feel right. The narrative behind it is like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the power of a, of, of a lie. And when we start to believe a, a lie about who we are in relation to God's grace, then that's when we become enslaved to the inferior, We become enslaved to the inferior. We become enslaved to our fatigue. We become enslaved to the idea that we're never going to change. We become enslaved to the idea that, oh man, it's just all I have is leftovers. We become enslaved to our imagination that I just have a little cloud over my head and I get a drop of grace maybe once a month. We start believing lies that are antithetical to what we find in Scripture. Titus tells us that God poured out his grace in his spirit on his people, right? And so when we believe a lie, to the extent that we believe a lie is the extent that we become enslaved to an inferior way of living. So how do we break that? Are you still with me? How, how, how? So we're coming full circle. First Timothy chapter one, verse 12. I love it. He says this, this is how we enter into God's grace. This is how we allow um, the Holy Spirit to, to go to work in us. This is how God changes our perspective. This is how we overcome all the, the, the nuances and tensions that we experience in our daily lives related to inadequacy, related to scarcity, related to God's grace. And this is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. He says this, I thank him. So so deep. He just says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I thank him. So what's the key to unlocking? How do I even say this? Like preaching is is a speech act where there's like so much inside of me that I want to say, I want to spend five hours distilling what I, is in my heart. So I, I just want to make sure my words are, are right here. I, I, I think what happens is when we thank the father for good things, even when everything around us is not good, it gets us in touch with reality. In other words, I, Paul never forgets. He never forgets. What, what, what does that mean? He never forgets about his former life. He's always in this, not because he's a rare personality, but he's always in this, this mode of 
feeling and sensing the presence of God, which I think we all can experience, right? How, how, how did that happen to Paul? Well, I, I think the key here is that he obviously was a very thankful person. But when it comes to Thanksgiving, I think Thanksgiving is just really simple. It's noticing. It's noticing. It's noticing all the ways in which God has poured, not scrimped, but poured out his grace in our lives. The reason why Paul is theology rich and not theology poor is because he is a thankful person. Thanksgiving, in other words, actually gets you, gets you in touch with reality, right? Lies, what, it, what are lies? Lies are unreality. They're untruths that lead you away from who God is and they become self-fulfilling prophecies. So the way out of scarcity and inadequacy and all the different things that we struggle with in our lives is to thank our way out. Can I get an amen? This is important because the words gratitude and grace, as I close, come from the same root word, gratia, in Latin. So grace in its primary meaning is favor to the unworthy, right? So grace, in other words, because they're inextricably connected, grace always, or I'll say it this way, our understanding of grace always begets gratitude. So when we understand God's grace, what happens to our mind and our heart and our imagination and our soul? We start to see grace everywhere. And it's amazing. And when you begin to see that, what happens to your heart? Your heart is filled with wonder and awe and you start to practice gratitude. And then like a circular thing, it starts to compound. And the more you practice gratitude and thanksgiving, even though that week sucked, right? And you just thought everything like was going to hell and high water, right? When you practice thanksgiving, you are getting in touch with the reality that God always, every single day is absolutely enough for us, even when we're not enough. You see, again, Thanksgiving is noticing. Please hear me. It's not forgetting. The problem that we have, I think, with grace is we forget all the ways in which God has been so good to us. We forget this, we forget that, we forget this, 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 and this. And then we just have this propensity, it's wired into us, to remember all the negative things. The way we short-circuit that or circumvent that is to practice Thanksgiving. Now, what I love about Thanksgiving is Thanksgiving is all about appreciation. And here's the thing, what you, this is just a law, I hate even saying law, I'll, I'll call it a principle. I even, I even hate saying that, well, but I'll use it. It's a principle of the cosmos and it's this, whatever you appreciate, appreciates. Whatever you appreciate, appreciates. It grows in value. But the opposite is true, whatever you depreciate, depreciates. It loses its value. It's funny, as I close this last, this last week, I, um, my wife wasn't feeling well. And so, um, I took care of seven kids and God dealt with me in, in a very particular way with the pretentiousness of productivity. I'm a, I realize I'm a number three on the Enneagram. I don't really care. I'd 
I'm, I'm not a personality guy because I feel like I get, if I read my personality, I'm like a slave to that. And I'm like, I can't, no one's gonna, no one, the man's not gonna bring me down, right? Um, but the, the three is an achiever. I just, I'm, I, I gotta produce, I gotta perform, I gotta whatever. And so I'm taking care of seven kids and there are mornings, like I'm up all night. This isn't like humble brag because I don't wanna be up all night. I need my sleep. I wake up in the morning and, you know, my son, Presley, who is the most beautiful boy in the world. He's probably the sweetest kid that you'll ever meet, except for the mornings. I don't know what it is, but he rages. He comes out of his sleep with a rage, okay? And then my little Riley, my beautiful little Riley boy, he's just, he's our youngest. And so he's our baby. He just needs me. And, you know, when I wake up and before coffee, I'm just, I am, I'm not a good person, Okay. And so I'm just, I remember there was just several days where I'm just exhausted and I'm wiped out and, you know, I have poop on my hand. No joke. I literally had that. Someone's like eating some vitamins. I have no idea what they are. Again, seven kids and I got three big kids who are fighting, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to lose my mind. Right. And I remember thinking this, God, where is your grace? Where is your grace? grace. And then all of a sudden, I just felt like the Holy Spirit stopped me. And this is the tone. The tone of God's voice was, Chris, stop being a baby. You you have enough babies, okay? So stop being a baby. And then just look in front of you. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit, just notice, okay? Just notice. Just Just take inventory. All right. Yes, yes, yes. This this is not the funnest thing. Yeah, and you're wiped out and you're tired and you're exhausted. But start taking inventory of your life. So I started taking inventory of my life and just started just naming. As kids are screaming, I'm just naming, God, I'm thankful for this and this and this. And it's amazing. It's like a Pandora's box is open in a good way, right? And I start seeing more things. I said, more th- I'm like, oh my God, I forgot about that. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. I'm, that story, are you kidding me? You did that and you did that and you did that and you did that. Oh my gosh, and there's more and you did that and you did that and you did that and you did that. That was on a Thursday and then the following day, I'm not even joking. And I think it's really the grace of God. I was filled with so much energy. I can't explain it. I had energy like I've never had before in a very long time. And I attribute that to the grace of God working through gratitude. And I was at guys, I fixed things. This ain't <laughs> wow. Right. I, I got things done. I fixed stuff and I'm convinced. And I know you think this is like really superficial, but it's not, this is just I'm trying to make the correlation between gratitude and grace is that I am convinced that if I didn't open my heart to the Holy Spirit and start thanking him for the little things, which opened me up to bigger things that I started thanking him for, I would not have had the energy to be the father, the husband, the pastor that God had called me to be the following day. It's grace. Here's the thing as I close. It's grace that transforms your perspective. You begin to appreciate as you begin to appreciate things, those things appreciate, begin to grow in value. You begin to see reality as it is. Grace starts to pour down on you no matter what you're going through. And it gives you the resilience to handle everything. And then, and then, here's here's the key. What happens is you become, because you're a thankful person, 
you become a person who wants to help other people. Ungrateful people have no capacity to share, serve, love, help, give their lives away to other people. The danger when you're going through difficult times, we all go through difficult times, and we want to be sensitive to that. But the danger, the shadow side of going through difficult times is that you become so obsessed with yourself, you forget about everybody else. Thanksgiving unlocks the door to pouring your life out for the sake of others. You, in the words of, in the words of one scholar, you become a flow person rather than a person like a pond that has dammed up the water. We have so many Christians that are like pawns. Like, here's the thing, the, the secret to life is movement, people. It's flow. Water needs to flow. You dam up the water, it stagnates. And it becomes a, I don't know, it becomes a place for pollution and toxins and algae and things that destroy the water. Water, if it's gonna be life-giving, has to flow. When we're grateful, when we're grateful, the grace of God then flows through us to other people. And we become dispensers of God's grace to people in our neighborhood, to people at our places of work, to people at school, come on somebody, to people in the city, at the grocery store, at Starbucks. Come on, please somebody help me out here. We become dispensers of grace by helping people in our generation because we're grateful. And we're grateful because we've understood and we've grasped the power of grace. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you that we don't live from leftovers. I thank, you, I thank you that your grace is, is as effective as it was 2,000 years ago. I thank you that, Lord, as a church, we're no longer going to become, and I just declare this over our church, a theology-poor church. We're going to be, become a theology-rich church, where we begin with an assumption out of scarcity, but we're going to begin with God's grace. Father, forgive us as your eyes are closed, your heads are bowed. Father, forgive us for playing that rigged game of worthiness. Forgive us, Father, the works, right? Grace is opposite of works. And, and works simply means as your eyes are closed, simply means not just human doing or human performance. Works here means ethnic, social, economic capital that ensures worthiness. And when it comes to God, the primary aspect of his grace is that it is given to those who are unworthy. So that's where we start. We realize that God, in our own strength, we cannot break the addictions in our life. In our own strength, we don't have the energy to build for your kingdom like you want us to do. In our own strength, we cannot be the father, the husband, the, the wife, the mother that you've designed us to be. But we can't be followers of Jesus without your grace. Or it's, 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 it's incongruous. It's, it's grace given wherein no requirements 
are met. You give it to us and then we respond in faith. We respond in love and we respond in gratitude. And we thank you. It's that response to what you have done that transforms us into the people that you have called us to be for such a time as this. So I thank you, Father. This church is not gonna play the the worthy game. Lord, we're gonna live by a renewed sense of your grace. Lord, I thank you that those who are struggling with inadequacy, those who are struggling with a sense that they're always gonna be stuck, they're always gonna be bound to an addiction, they're always, they've tried, they've tried, they've tried, they've tried to overcome such and such. And Lord, they, they've, they've lost their way. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, you would renew their faith. You bring encouragement and comfort to their mind and their heart and their soul in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you that Paul's life is an example, an incredible example of what you can do in our lives. So we thank you for your grace in the mighty name of Jesus. Keep your eyes closed, your heads bowed. Thank you, Father. We're gonna sing a song here really quick. Before I do that, I'm gonna pray. I feel like I need to pray for a couple people. This one particular group, you, um, and I I feel strong about this. You have trust issues. You can't connect with God. It's hard for you to trust God. And maybe you've realized this before, but you're, you're realizing it today that you, you really find it hard to trust God because of betrayal in the past. Maybe it was with a mother, a father, uncle, aunt, an authority figure betrayed you, did something to you. And now not only do you find it hard to trust people, you also find it hard to trust God and everything that we're talking about. And today you want to be set free from that. You want to be healed from that. I just feel like healing is in, I'm going to say it, healing is in the house today, church. Today is the beginning of, of, of you. Almost, I see it almost as if you're like, a couple of weeks from now, you're going to look at your life as your former life and you're going to look at your life as a new life. It's how stark it's going to be. God's going to do something so brand new in your mind and your heart. That's going to bring healing to you. If that's you, you say, Chris, I want you to pray for me. Yeah, I got some trust issues, connect, connecting issues with God. And I realize the source of it. Could you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. No one's looking. Okay, I see those hands. I see those hands. I see those hands. All right, you put your hands down. If you raise your hand, go to put on your heart. Father, I thank you for every person, every son and daughter that raised their hand. I thank you for your healing to go to work in them. I thank you that your grace would take over their mind and their heart. I thank you that you would bring encouragement to them. Father, anything that would keep them from, and there's a thousand different things that would keep them from fully living from a place of your grace. Lord, I thank you that you bring revelation and I thank you bring healing to that in the mighty name of Jesus. Again, as a pastor of this church, I declare healing is in this church. And we thank you that people are being, come on church, healed today in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want you to stand as you stand. If this is not your church, maybe you're here for the first time, you certainly don't have to do this. But if this is your church, go to lift up your hands. 
let's end with a little prayer and worship. Is that cool with you? All right, let's sing this song. You can close your eyes. Thank you, Jesus. Break every God a hand. All right, lift up your hands as I, as I close in prayer. Father, I thank you right now. We believe that. Lord, by grace. Everyone say grace. Come on, everyone say grace. By grace, we declare together as the people of God that every stronghold in our mind, in our body, in our heart is broken in the name of Jesus today. Lord, we declare the name of Jesus over every situation. Father, I thank you. Freedom from every addiction. And that's what I pray right now, that you would break every addiction. There are some people in this room, you have tried to break a certain addiction, and you've tried and you've tried, but the Holy Spirit is going to give you grace today, and you're going to see a new work of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be filled 
with this power. Come on, somebody. The Holy Spirit's going to pour out onto you, and you're going to see a new work in your life beginning today in Jesus' name. So we declare healing. Everyone say healing. We thank you that you would heal our minds, those who suffer from depression and anxiety. We declare healing. We break every curse. We break every stronghold. We break everything that would oppose the work of God in our life. And as we lift our hands one last time, we receive your grace in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.